Open up your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Daniel chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10. Title for our lesson is the Ram and He-Goat vision. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? (laughs) We're going to talk about more animals and more horns today. So let's begin by asking the Lord's blessing on our time, if you'd bow with me. We thank you, Father, so much for this opportunity to assemble together. We um, are so privileged to be free, to be able to do this, to open your word, to get to know you better, to fellowship with other Christians, our sisters in Christ. Thank you, Father, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to anyone, anyone who is willing to accept it and to give you first place in our busy lives. And Lord, we thank you for our many blessings. We thank you again um, for the depths of your word and how you uncover to us the rich treasures that are readily accessible to anyone who is willing to dig for them. And I pray, Father, that you are putting a deep, deep hunger into every woman's heart here to learn more and to learn more and more and more about you and your revelation to us through the study of your word. And I pray that they are sharing what they learn with those in their homes and and those they come into contact with. I pray that by the end of this particular lesson, and I know, Father, it's a difficult one, it's a history lesson, and But anyway, I know you can use it because it's your word. I pray that they'll see practical values that arise from a study of prophecy and history together and how you knew the end from the beginning because history is your story. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be the teacher. Hide me behind the Lord Jesus. May he alone be glorified through this morning's lesson, for it is in his wonderful and blessed name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, in our study, if you remember, of chapters 2 to 7, which was the second main division of our Daniel study in Aramaic, we had a broad outline of the period of time referred to by Jesus as the times of the Gentiles. And that whole time had a special emphasis on the return of the Son of Man, you know, coming in the clouds in order to take back the title deed of this earth from the usurper, Satan. And from evil incarnate, which will be at that time the Antichrist. Now, the vision that we are going to be looking at in chapter 8 begins with prophecy regarding the conflict between the two empires, the two succeeding empires that followed Babylon. And what would they be? What followed the head of gold, the next empire? The Medo-Persians and then who? The Greeks. So we're going to be talking about, it's it's narrowing from the times of the Gentiles, that broad period of time from the the Babylonian uh, Empire to the second coming of Christ. Now we're narrowed down to Medo-Persia and Greece. And we're going to look at conflicts between those two. And then it's going to, the focus is going to get even more narrow as it, it comes down to a specific conflict that takes place on a very tiny piece of property on the world map. And that little piece of property is called Israel. We're going to look at a conflict that takes place in Israel. Now, from Daniel's perspective, five, six hundred years before Christ, everything that he was looking at in this vision was the mysterious future. From our perspective, however, the contents of chapter 8 deal with the enlightened past. For him, it was prophecy. For us, it's history. And we look at the prophecy, and it was all fulfilled to the very detail in history. But in looking back at it as history, there is also a hint to the future. Because a lot of what went on with Alexander the Great and another man um, called Antiochus Epiphanes, a lot of that is giving a hint about the future Antichrist and his character and some of his actions. So there is a, it's, his, it's history, but there's also a little bit there about the future for us. So never in a million years thought I would be a history teacher. I used to teach second grade, but you know, you don't get into deep history in second grade. But today we're going to get in some deep history. So follow with me because it's really, it's really exciting when you look at history from scripture's perspective and from God's perspective. It just comes alive. And it really reinforces the fact that God is sovereign. 
And don't, don't you get comfort in knowing he's sovereign and he's in control of everything? I mean, we just really just trust him. He is in control. And when he fulfills his prophetic word, how does he fulfill it? completely perfectly right down to the jot and tittle doesn't he and that's what we'll see this morning so don't let me see your eyes glazing over (laughs) all right the title for this lesson i told you is the ram and and the goat vision and with that introduction let's look at what daniel had to tell us about this vision by way of introduction and for that we're going to look at verses one and two daniel eight verses one and two in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me. Daniel is kind of shocked about this, isn't he? <laughs> I got this vision. After that which appeared unto me at the first. Now there he's referring to the uh, other vision, the dream vision that he received two years earlier in Daniel chapter 7, which was um, really a dream. This is a vision. Three times in these two verses, he says, vision, vision, vision. Before I get into it, the, verse 2, I want to say, he never says that this is a dream. He says it's a vision. Now, don't ask me how this works, because I don't know. But it's probably something like when Ezekiel was, he was in Babylon, contemporary of Daniel. He was in Babylon, but he had a vision back to Jerusalem and the temple and what had been going on in the temple before they were carried as captives. Somehow or another, you know, he was just transported by the Spirit and could see what was going on then. And maybe like John, the apostle, when he was on the island of Patmos and he was in the Spirit, but he saw what was happening in heaven. Now, can you explain that? I can't because I've never had a vision like that. But this, Daniel is not sleeping here. He's actually awake and he's having this vision. And that's, I guess, why it shocks him. A vision appeared to me, even unto me. And then verse 2, he says, And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Uli. All right, the time frame he gives us immediately is that this was the second year of the reign of King Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the one with the finger writing on the wall guy. Okay, so this is the second year of his reign. That means there's 12 more years of the Babylonian kingdom. Before that, the dooming night, you know, with the handwriting and everything. So it's the year 551 B.C., if you want to write that in your Bible. Daniel would have been about 70 years old at this time. So while he is yet in uh, the city of Babylon, his vision allowed him to see a city called Shushan, or in Greek it's called Susa. It was located 200 miles east of where he was in Babylon. Babylon is in modern-day Iraq. Shushan would be in modern-day Iran. It's about 150 miles north of the uh, Persian Gulf. If you look at a map at the end of your Bible, you can see where it was. But at the time that Daniel had this vision, it was a very insignificant city. Nobody really knew about Shushan. Now, the word palace in verse 2 in the King James literally refers to a citadel or a fortress because the city itself was like a fortress. It was built high on a hill. It was a mountainous area there, but it was the whole city was up on this high hill that was so steep you couldn't get to it except by this man-made road that they had carved, you know, to get up there, and that road was very well guarded so that it was. The whole city was like a, a fortress. Now, some 80 years later, after Daniel's vision, A particular queen would live in that city. Anybody want to guess who that queen was? Yes, Queen Esther lived. She married to King Artaxerxes. She lived in Shushan. And then 107 years later from this time of Daniel's vision, Nehemiah lived in Shushan. He was, um, she wasn't married to Artaxerxes, was she? Yeah. Yeah, there were, there were two, there were different Artaxerxes. Okay, because Nehemiah was the cupbearer for another Artaxerxes, and he got permission to leave Shushan to return to Jerusalem and do what? Rebuild the wall. Right, okay. So, uh, so later on, Shushan would become, actually later, about 100 years or less, about 80 years after uh, Daniel's vision, it became the winter capital for the Medo-Persian Empire. But at the time of Daniel's vision, Medo-Persia wasn't an empire at all. 
So this is all prophecy from his perspective. He mentions that his vision occurred by a particular river, the river of Uli. Now, it's interesting that he used a Hebrew. Now, remember, we're back in Hebrew. Chapters 2 to 7, we were in Aramaic. Now we return to Hebrew. So the Hebrew word that he was inspired to use for river puzzled people for years because it's the only time that word appears in the whole Bible. And it's not, it doesn't really speak of a river. It's... Um, it's an odd, it's a, it's a, a peculiar word, um, a regular word. But guess what? Archaeology always shows us that the Holy Spirit knows exactly what he's talking about because in the 1800s, archaeologists digging in the area of Shushan discovered this man-made canal, 900-foot canal called Ulias. Uli, Ulias. And what it was, see, it wasn't really a river. That's why there was this particular unique word used for it. It was a canal, a man-made canal that connected two nearby rivers so that they could transport water from those two rivers up to Shushan. So, again, you see, prophecy, soap, it's just so amazing. Um, so da- here's the thing. Daniel, there's no way he could have known that, right? He, he could not have known that Shushan was going to be this capital for the Medo-Persian um, empire and that he used a particular word for a canal that hadn't even been dug yet isn't that amazing okay anyway so although he was in babylon 551 bc his vision projects him to a minor village that no one would suspect had any potential at all for a for future significance much less to become the royal city of the medo-persian uh, empire and he's standing by, beside this canal that hasn't even been dug yet and it says he lifts up his eyes and what does he see he sees two animals and they are a ram and a he goat so let's look at the characters of the vision verses three to five then i lifted up mine eyes and saw and behold there stood by or before the river a ram which had two horns and the two horns were high but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. I saw a ram, the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beasts might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And I was considering, as I was considering or as he was gazing at this ram, behold, and he goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. I think I'm going to stop right there. This is the characters of the vision. He sees a ram standing before the canal, and it's got the standard two horns of all rams. All rams, unless they're, you know, one's broken off, have two horns. Can you picture them? They're kind of curved. Okay, so he sees this ram, except one, what's unusual is that one horn is higher than the other. And the one that is higher came up last. Now, how he saw that, I don't know. I guess he saw them popping out. (laughs) Um, Now, it appropriately pictures the Medo-Persian Empire, and it is a representative of the Medo-Persian Empire. How do I know that? Well, Gabriel tells us in the interpretation of this vision. Look at verse 20. The ram which thou sawest, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. So this ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire, which had already been represented in Nebuchadnezzar's dream by the silver breast and two arms, right? Two arms representing the duo nature of the empire, the Medes and the Persians. And in Daniel's dream of chapter 7, the Medo-Persian Empire, if you have your charts with you, you might want to look at it. It will help a lot. Yeah, that one right there it will really help you. Um, in Daniel's dream of chapter 7, Medo-Persia was represented by the lopsided bear. Remember? One side of the bear higher than the other. Showing all these things, you know, the two horns, the two arms, the lopsided bear, show that the uh, Persians, even though they came into prominence after the Medes, the Medes were first, but the Persians under Cyrus gained more power and more prominence in this, uh, this double um, nation empire. 
Now, an, a ram, a ram perfectly pictured the Persians because they had a ram stamped on their coins. They had a ram stamped on their um, banners, you know, their flags. In fact, when kings, the kings of Persia didn't wear a crown, they wore a golden ram's head instead. That'd be kind of awkward, wouldn't it? Heavy. But especially, if, and you can see pictures online if you want to Google ram's heads. <laughs> but that, particularly when they went out to war, they had this golden ram's head on their head. So ram was very perfect, just as the lopsided bear and the arms and everything God does is always perfect. Well, in verse 4, he sees this ram pushing three directions, west, north, and south, but there's no mention of an eastward expansion. Why is that? Well, because everything we talk about within the times of the Gentiles has to do with Gentile kingdoms that affected Israel, right? Not the dynasties of China, not what was going on in South America, etc., but any empire that affected Israel. And as far as that is concerned, Medo-Persia was the empire of the East. There was never a further East empire that affected Israel. Medo-Persians did. Now, I want to ask you a question. Nobody knew this yesterday, but let's see if there's somebody really smart today. What is the uh, marker that, and this is not only in scripture, but it's in secular geography, that separates the east from the west? When we talk about the east or the western world, what is that marker? What divides the two? Anybody? Huh? No, that's the timeline thing, yeah. That's what I would have guessed. It's the Euphrates River. Did you say that? (laughs) Did you say it? Good girl, you get a gold star. <laughs> um, yes, it's the Euphrates River, and um, and and uh, the Persians were beyond. You know, they were on the eastern side of the Euphrates River. All right, so this threefold compass direction of the ram also corresponds with the three ribs that were in the bear's mouth. Remember, the lopsided bear had three ribs. And that talks about the three major conquests of the Medo-Persian forces, which were... They conquered Babylonia to the west. They conquered Lydia to the north and Egypt to the south. So, again, it's perfect. Cyrus the Persian, you know, he was actually sort of the emperor of the whole Medo-Persian uh, empire. Um, he, he faced very little resistance, and neither did his son Cambyses when, they, when it came to conquests. And that's actually also predicted in Daniel's vision by the statement in verse 4 that says no beasts, no other beasts, and you know the beasts represent other nations, were able to stand before him. He just rammed through everything, nor could they be delivered out of his hand. And what did he do? It says he did according to his will and he became great. So easily were the overwhelming armies of the Medes and the Persians able to conquer because they had really, I mean, there was a bear, you know. We talked about this big lumbering bear. They weren't fast like Greece, a leopard, but they were um, many. They were big. They were bulky like a bear because their armies consisted of literally millions of men. So everywhere they went, they just, they conquered. No one could stand against them. And so uh, Cyrus was able to um, establish his empire in a mere 10 years. So while yet in the Babylonian empire, with at least 12 more years to go, Daniel saw the future coming of the ramming Medo-Persian empire. That's by you, why you see at the, by the time of the handwriting on the wall, he knew that, didn't he? He knew that they were going to be conquered and doomed at the and you know, many, many take Paris. The the Persians are coming. They're at the door. Well, in verse five, another animal enters the vision, and it's a he goat. Where does the he goat come from? The West. Do you know that Greece was the um, first kingdom of the times of the Gentiles to arise from the West? You know, the western side of the Euphrates River. Comes from the West so quickly that his feet don't even touch the ground. What does that correspond to? Greece, fast, Alexander, remember the four wings of the leopard? That showed speed. Well, the fact that his feet don't, the, the uh, he goat's feet don't touch the ground is comparable to the four wings. He conquered fast. Greece under Alexander co- conquered everything very, very quickly. Well, we find out that this he goat has a notable horn right smack dab between its eyes coming out. 
So this is like um, not a regular goat. You see a goat like that very often? <laughs> this is what I call a unicorn he-goat. <laughs> and the he-goat, we know, pictures Greece. We have no doubt about it. History tells us that Greece conquered the Medes and the Persians, but so too did Gabriel. Look at verse 21. Gabriel, again speaking to Daniel in the interpretation, says, And the rough goat, or shaggy goat, or the he-goat, is the king of Grecia. And the the great horn that's between his eyes is the first king. So we know that the he-goat represents Greece, and that notable horn coming out of his head represents Greece's first king. Who was he? Daniel didn't know his name, but we do, because we can look back on history. Who was the first real conquering king of Greece? Alexander, Alexander the Great, he called himself. Um, Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that giant statue, we know that Greece was represented by the... Anybody remember? Look at your pictures. What was Greece represented on the statue? Not the head of gold, not the silver breast, but the what? Brass, abdomen, and upper thighs. And, of course, in Daniel's uh, chapter 7 dream, it was represented by the four-winged leopard. Greece. Now, did you know that the national emblem of Greece is a goat? <laughs> uh, you know, my grandmother, well, both of my grandpa- my paternal grandparents came from Greece. And um, I went to look up my roots once upon a time when I was about 22 years old and found out that my grandmother came from a, a near outside of Corinth, but it just way, I had to get off the train and walk for miles, and the only person I passed was a guy on a donkey. I mean, it was really remote. Um, but it was in the mountain, real mountainous part of Greece, and she was a shepherdess. And I saw the house she grew up in, which was about one-tenth of the size of this room, tiny little place. with She had like 14 brothers and sisters in that one little place. But anyway, she was a shepherdess, and she shepherded goats <laughs> and, and sheep. And there's a tradition that says why Greece uh, is known for goats. It's a mythological thing, and I give it to you in your lesson. I'm not going to take the time now. It's rather interesting, but um, I really think the reason, because this is mythology, and I don't believe in mythology, but I think the real reason that Greece is symbolized by goats is because there are just so many goats in Greece. (laughs) And their favorite god... I told my daughter yesterday, my daughters, I said, I guess we're going to have to go out and get some goats, right? Because <laughs> your mother's a goat person. Actually, the name Aegea, they used to call the Greeks Aegei, Aegei or something like that, which means goat people. And the Aegean Sea, which is um, between Greece and Turkey, is, is actually the goat sea. <laughs> Another reason is their favorite god that they worshipped was Pan, P-A-N. You're, can you picture him? He was half goat and half man, supposedly, you know, the the son of Zeus, but that's just a bunch of foolishness. But their emblem was goat, a goat, so that makes sense too. Now, normally a male goat has two horns, but this one, as I said, is more like a unicorn goat, and it's located right between his eyes. Now, what do we talk about eyes in the Bible? What do they symbolize? Intelligence, okay? The notable horn... Interpreted by Gabriel is Greece's first king, and he was Alexander the Great, who was known for his genius, his intelligence. He was a great, great military genius, as was his father, Philip of Macedon. See, Alexander was actually a Macedonian. Um, His father was the king of Macedon, but when his father died and he took over, he... he, um, put all the Greek city-states together and really literally did become the first king, not his dad, but he became the first king of the Greek empire, the United Greek Empire. But his dad was a military genius too. Did you know that Alexander was educated at the feet of Aristotle? Now, if you think highly of Aristotle, you really shouldn't. You know, we all know, great philosopher Aristotle. But do you know what the man really believed? If you look up what he really believed, it's terrible. He believed that the Greeks were the superior race. Well, (laughs) those goat people, you know. (laughs) But he he really believed that everybody else, therefore, was a barbarian and worthy to be a slave. Isn't it amazing? I just hate 
that all throughout human history, we have been so bigoted and prejudiced, and every race thinks they're the best. Isn't that the dumbest thing in the world? Only in Christ do we realize we're all of one blood, one race, one people. Oh, so foolish. Anyway, so he thought the Greeks were superior. Um, Philip was able to unite Greece and Macedonia, and he was making plans to fight the mighty Medo-Persians when he was murdered, going to the theater. That reminds me of Abraham Lincoln. And his son was only 21 years old when his dad was murdered, but he decided to take up his father's cause, and within two years, sure enough, he had been able to unite all the fighting Greek city-states, and he was ready to try to battle the mighty Medo-Persians, the ram. The he-goat was going to come against the ram. So let's look at some confrontations next. In the vision, we see two confrontations. The first one is between the he-goat and the ram. And so let's look at that in verses 6 to 8. And he, that's the he-goat, came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river or the canal, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him, the he-goat, come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler or anger against him, and smote the ram and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he, the he-goat, cast the ram down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat, Greece, waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn, who was that? Alexander, was broken. And for it, or really from it, came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So the he-goat... The, the horn was broken, and in its place came up four other horns. You following what it's saying here? All right, it says in uh, verse 6, I think it is, that it was in the fury of his power that the he-goat from the west, which is Greece, suddenly attacked the two-horned ram. And the Hebrew word for fury means hot, anger, furious. The Greeks had a furious, hot hatred of the Medes and the Persians, the ram, because they had attacked and defeated them at two significant battles, the Battle of Marathon and the Battle of Salamis. And the very, very unhappy goat people abhorred the coming, the uh, oppression of the ram people. And the reason for that is because uh, they were very proud, the Greeks were, these goat people, they thought of themselves as, as great thinkers. After all, they had a whole host of, of philosophers. Um, they had Pythagoras and, um, and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And so they thought of themselves as the elite thinkers of the world. You know, they were superior to everyone else. They were more civilized and uh, intellectual. And they looked at the Medes and the Persians as, as rough and crude and uneducated and as barbarians. So they were very unhappy to be under the oppression of people that they thought were lesser than them. So in 334 B.C., Alexander departed from his home never to return again. He probably didn't know that, but he never would return again. At the age of 23, with only 35,000 men, he was coming against an army of millions, the big bear. He only had 35,000 men. He left Greece, and he entered into Medo-Persian territory to face an army that far outnumbered his. However, those Greeks, those goat men, <laughs> were so full of hatred and adrenaline that it caused them to fight really on kind of an unnatural level against the Medes and the Persians. And then remember this. What are they armored in? Remember the belly and the thighs? The Greeks are armored in brass and bronze, bronze shields, bronze helmets, bronze armor, and the Medes and Persians have their soft little turbans and their flowy pants, you know. And so there was no match. No match for the he-goat against the, 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 no, for the ram against the he-goat. And the ram was soon shattered and had no strength, it says, to withstand the power of the unicorn he-goat. Well, the next march of Alexander's army was down to Egypt. 
And he, along the way, he took the cities of Tyre and uh, Gaza. If you ever study how he took Tyre, it is amazing. I don't have time to get into it, but it was an amazing conquest of that city that thought it was absolutely safe and secure out there in the water, but they weren't. Anyway, then um, he gets to Greece, I mean to uh, Egypt, and the, and the Egyptians just give up without a fight. Now, Egypt was under the control of the Persians, but the Egyptian people, like the Greeks, weren't very happy about that. And so when Alexander comes in with his soldiers, they hail him as their mighty liberator. And uh, they were happy to see him because they didn't want to be under the oppression of the Medes and the Persians any longer. And so Alexander, in his great ego, this guy, you know, this young kid is getting more and more egotistic. First of all, he calls himself Alexander the Great. And then he takes on the title of Pharaoh of Egypt saying that it was by heavenly uh, design, which I guess it was, that he took Egypt. Um, and then on the Nile uh, River Delta, you know, where the Nile River comes into the Mediterranean Sea, he founded a city that is still in existence today, and he named it after himself. What is the name of the city, ladies? Alexandria. Have you been there? No, well, you were not. <laughs> I haven't been there either, but it's still there today. Um, and then, through his conquest, he also founded a lot of cities, but 12 more that he named for himself. So all in all, there were 13 Alexandrias in existence become, because of him. Uh, he was typifying, he was picturing ahead of time both the power and the speed of conquest and the ego that will be manifested, except to an even higher degree, by the coming Antichrist. So Alexander is a picture and type in certain ways of the Antichrist. Now there is a fascinating account, I don't know if you remember this, I shared it with you last year in our study, but it's worth repeating, by uh, Flavius Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. And he writes this account about Alexander as he's approaching Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, to conquer it. Okay? And he's at the perimeter of the city. And the high priest, Jadua, which I said sounds like a Star Wars character, doesn't it? But Jadua, the high priest, an intelligent guy, he comes out with great fanfare to meet Alexander, you know, preventing any kind of a fight. He goes out and he graciously invites him into the city. And he shows him the temple and he shows him around. And then he just happens to take out a scroll of the book of Daniel. And he begins to share with Alexander, how God, the Most High God, had predicted him, the, you know, as the he-goat, and that he was going to be the one who would conquer the Medes and the Persians. And he showed him the, uh, the leopard with the four wings and how fast he would do it. I don't think he talked about the four heads, you know. <laughs> if you get my drift. But, uh, and then he talked about how he was the, the brass belly and the in the thighs of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then he specifically told him about this he-goat with the notable horn and how he pointed to, you know, verse 21 of chapter 8 and said, that notable horn is you. And it says, and Josephus says that Alexander was so impressed that he um, offered a sacrifice in the temple and left the city in peace. Didn't destroy anybody, left in peace. And I think it's so funny because the critics, you know, they try to push up the date of the book of Daniel to the second century, but the bottom line is there would be no way that Jadua could have shown Alexander a scroll of the book of Daniel if it hadn't even been written yet. Get it? Do you get it? Well, following the peaceful conquest of Judah, Alexander went east to the ancient city of Nineveh with another decisive victory against the Medes and the Persians. The whole empire fell into his lap. You know, Alexander never once lost a single battle. An amazing military genius. Well, uh, so every country in the ancient east fell submissively to him, and he wanted to still conquer so he kept pressing. He went all the way to the Himalaya Mountains, you know, at the edge of uh, India. And he would have kept going. I think he would have tried to conquer India and then go into um, whatever comes next, you know, China, Mongolia, China, whatever, all the way. But his soldiers had been gone. They had been what we could call on deployment for 11 years. And they were sick and tired of all this. And they just wanted to go home. So they 
They refused to go with him any further. So he turned back and he stopped in Babylon, the city of Babylon. And it was in the palace of Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar died and where Belshazzar died that the broken, that the uh, notable horn was broken. Because it was while in the city and in the palace of Babylon that uh, Alexander, only 33 years old, at the height of his power and his career and his strength, just as Daniel said, you know, when, when he was strong, he was broken. Tradition says that even though he had a raging fever and he was just under great exhaustion, he became so inebriated that he choked to death on his own vomit. Isn't that amazing? A man who had conquered the whole known world in 11 years couldn't conquer his own bad habit of drinking. And that's really what was the cause of the fall of um, Babylon, wasn't it? The night of the drunken feast. So sad, sad, sad. So when he was strong, the great horn was broken. He thought, Alexander thought that he was brilliantly doing his own thing, right? You know, it was all due to him. His own work as he took his armies across Europe and Asia, down to Egypt, through Persia, onto the Indus River. Um, The phrase, he waxed very great, that not only speaks of the fact that he... he, uh, territorially expanded his his um, kingdom but it speaks of his own self-magnification the hebrew word really talks about how he waxed great in his own mind and doesn't this again isn't this a lesson again the pride cometh before what a fall there you go another example there's many and so many of them are leaders i think about fidel castro that man believes in god today doesn't he so Alexander thought himself to be godlike in his genius and in his accomplishment. So it really shouldn't surprise us that he was cut down in the prime of his life. The Lord had put him, you know, the Lord sets up kings, right? Takes them down. Lord set him up, had a great opportunity, even had a witness from Jadua, the high priest, about the truth of the high God, most high God and how his prophecies are perfect. He had a witness. And yet, what had he done with his time on earth and his position? He blew it because he just lived for himself, didn't he? Just totally lived for himself, and therefore he fell. Uh, He was snapped asunder in the very Babylonian palace where Nebuchadnezzar died and Belshazzar. All right. Well, nonetheless, despite the self-seeking pride of Alexander, the Lord used his conquests for his own specific purposes haven't we seen this in every one of the kingdoms so far remember nebuchadnezzar all right he was proud he got broken for seven years and then he issued a declaration to his whole kingdom didn't he about the most high god god used him he uh used uh, darius the mede in the Medo-Persian Empire, because after the lion den thing, what did he do? He too issued a decree to his whole kingdom about the most high God. Well, what did he, how did he use Alexander the Great? Let me tell you how he used him. He carried the Greek language everywhere he went. God wanted a universal language that people could all understand and know. He picked Greek because it is a very specific language. You know, in Greek, there are five words for love, and we only have one in English. So he picked Greek. He had the New Testament written in Greek, right? He um, even had 70 Hebrew scholars translate the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, that's the Septuagint, because the Jews, their first language became Greek rather than Hebrew. Um, So God was preparing the world for the gospel by sending Alexander who Hellenized and Greekitized and, you know, the known world. And then, I'm going to jump the gun, but how did he use the Roman Empire? You ever hear of the Pax Romana, you know? Well, not only, yeah, not only the whole road system that they built. He See, he was, by the roads, he was preparing the way for Peter and Paul and Titus and Silas and Luke and Timothy and all those guys in the early church, right, to get everywhere because there was a road system so they could take the gospel to everyone and everyone could understand them because they're speaking the same language as Greek. But there was the Pax Romana, which kind of made everything a time of peace and prosperity and, you know, so there weren't nations fighting each other everybody was in the roman empire so it's just awesome to see how god was preparing 
the whole world for the good news about his son, who was born in the fullness of time when he had whole, you know, totally set the stage with all these different empires. Are you following me? Are you glassy-eyed? Are you still <laughs> Oh. So Alexander does serve as a prophetic type of the Antichrist. He was swift in his conquest. He was incredibly effective, but, you know, just like he was broken at the height of his career, what's going to happen with the Antichrist at the height of his career? I mean, he's going to even have a briefer career as world de- dictator. It's only going to be three and a half years, and he too will be broken. Well, after the notable horn of the he-goat was broken, four horns came up in his stead. This is like the four heads of the leopard in chapter 7, and the four horns that replace the he-goat single horn are a prediction of the four generals who eventually took over the Grecian Empire following Alexander's death. Okay, he did not plan ahead. He did not have a successor to his throne. When you're 33, you're not really preparing, you know, for death. And so after he died there, continued for 22 years, this scratch-and-claw fighting among his many generals. He had a lot of generals. Well, finally... Oh, and by the way, they had no scruples about killing his family members. These generals killed his mother, Olympia. They killed his Persian wife, Roxana. They killed his half-brother, Philip. They killed his son, his young son, who he had named, listen to this one, Alexander Agia. You know what that means? Alexander the goat. (laughs) He was Alexander the great, but his poor little son was Alexander the goat. (laughs) But they killed his little son, and they even killed uh, an infant son who was born after his father's death. So that's cruel, isn't it? Well, finally, among after 22 years, from among his many generals, five generals rose to the top. Now, if the Greek empire had been divided among those five generals, guess what you could do with this book on your lap? Throw it out. Because how many did God say would succeed Alexander? Five or four? How many heads on the leopard? Four. So if it had been five, God didn't know his history well enough, and he's not really God. But God does know his history ahead of time. And so one of the five generals named Antigonus at the very last minute got snuffed out. (laughs) So there were four generals who succeeded the notable horn, Alexander. And they were General Cassander, who took the west which was Macedonia and Greece, uh, General Lysimachus, who took the north, Thrace, Bithynia, and Asia Minor. There was General Seleucus. Now, he's going to become important because uh, he's called later on the king of the north. That's Syria, basically, and Babylonia, and the lands all the way to India, the east. And General Ptolemy, he's called later the king of the south, his descendants. Um, He took Egypt and Israel... And Arabia. So we don't really hear any more about Cassander and Lysimachus in the Bible because they don't have direct contact with Israel. But we are going to hear more about the Seleucids and the Ptolemies because they did affect the land of Israel. But none of these men, none of these men ever ruled with the unified power of Alexander, which is exactly what it says in verse 22, what Gabriel says. Look at verse 22. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although what? Not with his power. They never had the power of uh, Alexander. Well, let's look now at the second conflict. We just looked at the conflict between the ram and the he-goat. And I'm not going to get to finish this conflict, so don't panic if the time is getting away. But there's another conflict, and we'll continue it in two weeks. And it's between a little horn and the pleasant land. What is the pleasant land? Can you guess? Israel. Okay, so there's going to be a conflict between the little horn and Israel. Let's look at verses 9 to 12. Even though I'm only going to get through to verse 10, I'm going to read 9 to 12. And out of one of them, that's out of one of the four horns that replaced the notable horn, out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great, 
toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land or the beautiful land, and that is Israel. And it, this little horn, waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and and prospered. Now that sounds really confusing, but Jesus referred to what went on here as the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And that is something we're going to study next time about Hanukkah and how Hanukkah came about was because of this horrible abomination of the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies in the the temple. All right, Daniel sees a little horn come out of one of the four horns that replaced the broken notable horn. We do talk a lot about horns, don't we, in this Bible study? Horns and wings and teeth and all kinds of things. This is an individual. We know because later on he's referred to as he. So this isn't a nation. This is an individual who will come to power from one of those four divisions of the Greek Empire. This is not a reference to the Antichrist. Now, I have read commentaries that say this is the Antichrist. This is the same little horn that we read about in chapter 7. But it's not. The Antichrist is a little horn who comes out of the fourth beast. That dreadful, terrible beast with iron teeth and brass nails, right? What beast are we talking about here? The he-goat? This is the third beast. This is Greece. This is a little horn that comes out of the empire of Greece, not Rome. Also, the little horn, who is the Antichrist, comes out of the midst of how many horns? (laughs) Ten. He comes out of the midst of ten. This one, this little horn sprouts up from one of four. Actually, he comes out of the Seleucid dynasty. So it's not the same. Don't get confused when you read, because then they assign the Antichrist. They say, well, he must be a Syrian, because Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian. No, 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 they're confusing their little horns. Also, we know that this little horn is allowed to persecute God's people. Look ahead at verse 14. Tell me how long this little horn in chapter 8 is allowed to persecute God's people. Right, 2,300 days, which equates to six years and four months. Six years and four months. How long will the little horn that comes out of the revived Roman Empire be allowed to persecute God's people? A time, times, and half a time, which is Three years and six months, not six years and four months. This is not the Antichrist. This is a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. But what makes God's prophecy so fascinating is that things can, can um, uh, predict or, or point to more than one event. Okay, this little horn is actually speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes, but I have to say that Antiochus Epiphanes is actually a prophetic type of the coming Antichrist who will do many of the things that Antiochus Epiphanes did, like the abomination of desolation of the temple and the persecution of God's people. So the eighth ruler of the Seleucid dynasty of Greece was a man. He was Greek by uh, heritage, but he grew up in Syria. So he's a Greek Syrian just like I'm a Greek-American, okay? Uh, He was the eighth ruler of the Seleucids, and um, his name was Antiochus IV. And this, we're talking about 175, you know, B.C. So we're getting closer and closer to Christ. Through this, although this prophecy of a little horn, the rise to power of Antiochus, he took on the name Antiochus Epiphanes. I'll explain what that means in a minute. But it's interesting because as we look at how he rose to power, it tells us, it sheds some light on how the Antichrist will rise to power. He, um, verse 9 says that this little horn waxed exceeding great. So originally he's little, isn't he? He, he came from littleness, and yet he grew to greatness. He grew to think of himself as very great. And he even grew to think of himself even greater than God. 
<clears throat> who he openly challenged and blasphemed. Antiochus ascended to the Seleucid throne following the murder of his brother, but his brother was only king of the Seleucid dynasty because the rightful king, Demetrius, was a hostage in Rome. Now, I know that's confusing, but all it means is that Antiochus had the throne not rightfully. It wasn't rightfully his. And does that shed some light on the Antichrist? Perhaps so, probably so. Um, how did he gain his throne then? Well, in verse 11, we find through it that it was through flatteries. And I think that's the same thing that's going to be with the Antichrist. You know, he's going to have this golden, charismatic personality and he'll flatter everybody into his position. Now, once Antiochus rose to power, he took on for himself the title, you're going to love this one, Theos Epiphanes. Do you know what that means, Theos? You know that. <laughs> God manifest. That's what it means. Here I am, God in the flesh. That's pretty much the height of egotism, isn't it? Blasphemy? Is that what the Antichrist is going to do too? Absolutely. Behind his back, I think it's funny, behind his back, the Jews referred to him, and this is a play on words, but they referred to him as Antiochus Epimenes which means Antiochus the maniac, <laughs> which was really much more appropriate. Well, verse 9 tells us that he conquered toward the south, the east, and the beautiful land or the pleasant land, which is Israel. In less than 400 years, the Syrian Greek maniac would bring about 400 years from Daniel's time, I'm talking. He would bring about one of the most horrific times in Israel's history for the true Israelites, the true believers, the remnant of Israel. This would be a horrific time. Now, those who really didn't care about their faith in Jehovah God, they just went along with Antiochus and became Hellenized, you know. They, um, they got Greekatized and they, they just forsook their faith and their sacrifices and all that. But for the true remnant of Israel, this was one of their worst times in all of their history. He was singled out here as the little horn in Daniel's vision because of his anti-Semitic persecution of Israel and because of his abomination of God's holy temple. You know what he did to the temple? I'm jumping the gun, but he slaughtered a pig on the altar in the holy temple. You know, a pig was unclean meat, and he took the juice of the pig and just spread it everywhere. He killed all the priests. He set up a, a statue of Zeus in the holy of holies. I mean, that's what Jesus said was an abomination of desolation, and it was horrible. And he attempted to rid the whole world of God's truth as given through the only pure and true God-given religion that there has ever been. You know what the only pure God-given religion is? Judaism. Not Christianity. Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. It's a relationship we have with God. But the only God-given pure religion was Judaism. Judaism was all about a picture of the coming redemptive work of Christ. And when Christ finished that work, what happened? The temple veil was rent in two because Judaism's work was finished just as Christ was finished. All Judaism was about was pointing to Christ. But he wanted to rid the world of that one true religion. So let's back up in history. I'm almost done to see the circumstances that preceded this horrific time of persecution. Uh, I call it Antiochus Epiphanes' reign of terror. Well, following Alexander's death in 323, did you know that possession of Israel to... Um, went into uh, different hands five times. She was possessed by one kingdom, you know, one dynasty and then another and another, five different times. But finally, the Ptolemies, under Ptolemy I, was able to take secure possession of Israel. And for 100 years, Israel lived in relative peace and prosperity under the Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic dynasty of the Greek Empire. The Ptolemies were tolerant. They allowed them to continue their faith and their lifestyle and keep their temple and all that as long as they paid heavy taxes. Everything was hunky-dory. But in 198 B.C., the Seleucids decided to come down 
and try to get Israel from the Ptolemies, and there was a war, and the Seleucids won. And that was bad news for Israel because the Seleucids were not, this is the king of the north coming against the king of the south, the Seleucids were not as tolerant as the Ptolemies, and they wanted to Hellenize everyone. Greekatize them, get them to stop their temple uh, worship and, you know, and uh, worship their gods, etc. And that was the driving force of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. He decided that he was going to sell the office of the high priest. Can you imagine this? To the highest bidder. You know, like uh, uh, President-elect Trump is trying to figure out who's going to be the secretary of state, right? How would you like it if he was going to sell it to the highest bidder? <laughs> No, no, no. Well, that's what Antiochus Epiphanes, who, who wants to be the next high priest, you know, give me the most money and you'll win. Well, what do you think the true Jews thought of that? They wouldn't go along with it at all. And so he used that as his excuse to kill 80,000 Jews and, and put 40,000 into slavery. And then he gave the position of high priest to a man by the name of Jason. Now, you can learn a lot about Jason from the non-inspired apocryphal intertestamental books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees because he's, he's in there a lot. He was a true person, Jason the high priest. But the man was either a, um, <clears throat> a uh, traitorous Jew or he was a Greek because Jason is a Greek name. Jason and the Agronauts, remember that? It's not a Hebrew name. So he was... He, he, anyway... Just as Antiochus Epiphanes is a prophetic type of the Antichrist, guess who Jason, the false high priest, is a picture of? The coming false prophet, exactly, who will enforce the worship of the Antichrist during the tribulation. Verse 10 begins uh, Daniel's description of the little horn's attack against uh, the pleasant land. The Antiochus Epiphanes, his attack against Israel. Um, and it says that he, he cast a host of heaven and a host of stars to the ground and stamped on them. I don't have a time to, de- time to develop this, but I do in your notes, when you read your notes, um, the host of heaven and the host of stars here just pictures the, the believers, okay, the Jews, the Israelites. He attacks them. It's, it's not as speaking of angels. Now, this vision prophecy was telling the Jews that a man from one of the four divisions of the once united Greek empire was going to persecute them very, very harshly. And that, I mean, told them 400 years or 200, 300 years ahead of time that this was going to happen. Okay. Um, so he's giving them a forewarning, isn't he? So when they see Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, if they could put their prophecy together, they could have fled to uh, Petra, (laughs) like Linda was just asking me about. They could have gotten out of there when they saw him coming and figured, you know, the abomination of desolation. But um, he's also telling them through this guy that this is what's going to happen in the end times, and that is exactly what will happen because it says in Zechariah 13, 8, that the Antichrist is going to slaughter two-thirds of uh, the Jews, Two-thirds of all the Jews will be slaughtered during the tribulation. But they've got a forewarning ahead of time, don't they? You know, if they, if they would read their scriptures and believe, they could get out of here with us in the rapture like Carol's going to do. <laughs> and Helena, I don't see her today. Is she here? Um, but, you know, um, those Jews who have come to Christ have all this forewarning, don't they? But he's also going to slaughter, of course, anyone who turns to Christ during the tribulation time. So it's much better to go in the rapture than stay around and, you know, face, face the Antichrist. Um, Alexander foreshadowed, Alexander the Great foreshadowed the power and the speed and the brokenness um, of the coming world dictator, the Antichrist. But he didn't picture the murderous persecution and the anti-Semitism of the coming Antichrist. Who pictured that? Antiochus Epiphanes. So between the two men, we have signposts of the coming Antichrist. And in our continuing study of this vision, in two weeks, we're going to look further at exactly what it was, I told you a little bit, that Antiochus did in his persecution of the Jews and their faith. And in doing so, we are going to very conveniently come to talk about the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. So isn't that interesting, right? Who could have planned that? 
<laughs> any better than the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, for the truth of your word and that you are indeed in control, absolutely, of everything. And, oh, man, what comfort we can take in that because we live in a tumultuous, chaotic world, and it is just so comforting to know that everything is right on schedule with you. Lord, I, I love you. I love these women. I love the fact that they didn't get glassy-eyed, that they looked excited about your prophetic word and how it lined up with history so perfectly. Oh, we have so much to look forward to, Father. We, we say now as we break for two weeks, if we don't come back, if your son comes in the meantime, hallelujah, praise the Lord, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now bless everyone, help us to be salt and light till we come together again for we pray in your blessed name. Amen. And bless you.